Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hello all and welcome back to Medicus. I'm extremely excited for today's episode because we are here to discuss complementary and alternative medicine, which is also known as CAM. I'm highly curious about this field because some of these practices are hardly even touched upon in the standard medical curriculum, yet according to the NIH's National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, about 38% of adults and 12% of children are currently using some type of CAM therapy. So to provide you all with an in-depth discussion of CAM therapies and treatment, we have brought in an amazing physician, Dr. Kit Lee, who is board certified in certain CAM practices and is extremely well-versed on other CAM therapies. Dr. Lee completed her undergraduate and medical education at Northwestern University and completed her family medicine residency at McNeil Hospital in Berwyn, Illinois. Dr. Lee is board certified in medical acupuncture and a certified yoga instructor. Additionally, she has professional training in mind-body-spirit medicine and training in medical hypnosis. She currently works as a family medicine physician and a professor for Loyola Medicine. As an FYI, we record this interview via Skype, and we start our discussion with asking Dr. Lee the differences between complementary medicine, alternative medicine, integrative medicine, folk medicine, herbal medicine, and homeopathy. So we hope you guys enjoy this episode, and let us know what you think. It, part of it is historical. Um, folk passes down over time, and herbal is really talking about uh, botanicals, so that would be herbal. Mm. And, and it doesn't, right? It wouldn't, for example, include manual therapy. Mm. Um, when you look at complementary and alternative, I think that the terms imply that when it's a complement, it goes along with something else that's happening, mm-hmm. as opposed to alternative where it's one or the other. So you may choose to take your red yeast rice and never think about a drug, for example, for cholesterol or red mm-hmm. rice, red yeast rice. Um, Currently, and, and these terms are evolving, integrative is the one that is the most broad under which some of these things that uh, these other categories fall under. And it's the idea that it doesn't have to be just one or the other, that you can incorporate other modalities that will help to bring about health and, and, and help with illness. So it is more politically correct, I think, to say integrative medicine when you're talking about an approach that comes from that kind of mindset that it's okay to use something else as opposed Mm -hmm. to, I think we're moving away from the idea that it's alternative because it doesn't have to be just one or the other. Um, So what is slash is not considered alternative medicine? And like, are there any misconceptions about what alternative medicine is? You know, that's also evolving uh, with time. Right now, for example, Medicare is contemplating covering for acupuncture. And I let's see what's the date. And I think they are to come to a decision today, actually. And there is just as compelling research that says it works um, as there are research that says maybe it doesn't. So it's and then when you and that gets complicated because it depends on how the research is done and what we consider to be adequate and what's the threshold and does mm-hmm. history matter and the fact that you've got people who get well from it matter, right? So mm-hmm. what we call what isn't acceptable or acceptable and I think sometimes is a matter of time in determining the mechanism and the standard that we hold a treatment towards. Homeopathy has been around for a long time, but is that 
acceptable or not. I think it becomes the 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 um, the client, the the patient, who makes a decision about whether it's acceptable. I think the key principle has to apply, which is to do no harm, especially as medical doctors who are taking care of our patients. If we're going to think about uh, allowing something to come in to our standard allopathic care, the most important principle is that it doesn't do harm. And I think that if something does not do harm and it's beneficial, then I would call it acceptable. Mm, Whether the science is terrifically strong or not for something. Yeah, yeah. So you said you were an acupuncturist or you were board certified in acupuncture. Is that how you would describe it? I am. But yeah. I would not say that I'm an acupuncturist. You have licensed acupuncturists who spend three years training in traditional Chinese medicine and, and do needling, and that's all that they do. But they don't come from a medical background. They're not medical doctors, for example. So it's a unique set of us that do it as a com- you know, as a complement, as an additional skill that we have to offer. Gotcha. Just like knowing about uh, sports medicine, for example, or if you have special mm-hmm. interest in gynecologic care and you go mm-hmm. deeper into it i think this is but this is not the traditional allopathic um, modality it's a different system of medicine that you learn about and you incorporate mm, yeah and you know just going with that there is this list that i compiled from various sources like the national center for complementary and alternative health that described the different therapies um, that was considered under the CAM methodology. And that all included uh, chiropractic, acupuncture, aromatherapy, um, biofield therapy, naturopathy, uh, herbal medicine, massage therapists, uh, re- registered yoga therapists, meditation teachers, um, etc. So I thought it might be useful to ask your thoughts on the definition of each of these things and what each of these therapies uh, brings to the table for patients or um, what ailments the therapy best treats. So I guess let's start with chiropractic and osteopathic manipulation. And I know there are differences between these two. So maybe the best question to start is, what are the differences between uh, chiropractic and OM and why you would refer a patient for either of these treatments? For chiropractic, I traditionally have thought about them as for some of the musculoskeletal conditions and in particular the back. I do know that a lot of the chiropractic doctors will uh, acquire additional training in some of the other alternative medicine or the other integrative medicine modalities, but the strongest um, evidence is, is for back, for back pain. In terms of osteopathic manipulations, the, the, um, the DOs, I think, are trained to do it as part of their medical training. Mm-hmm. And so, but because as we know, DOs also go on, you know, to traditional allopathic pathways. So those mm-hmm. who retain and remember how to do it certainly will, but I don't know of anybody who, I do know of actually one, one acupuncture physician, um, who is a DO who uses osteopathic manipulation for pain, for pain syndromes predominantly, you know, wherever the part of the body it arises. And so I I think that's, that's um, in of itself, it's part of someone's practice as opposed to only thing they do. So it's part Mm -hmm. of osteopathic training. And what were some Mm -hmm. of the other ones you wanted to talk about? So, yeah. So acupuncture. So you are a board certified 
clinical acupuncturist. And uh, so to start, I guess my question would be, why does someone receive acupuncture therapy slash what would you recommend it for? Mostly for pain, like back pain. I have referrals for headache, uh, neuropathy, but there are also menopausal and hormonal reasons that I get sent. There's depression. I think that in some ways the list can be limitless because it's more of a system of medicine than it is a strictly one type of treatment, if you will. It comes from the basis of traditional Chinese medicine. So you have to think about what we think of as Western diagnosis in an Eastern sense and what might energetically be out of uh, alignment. And once you've made that determination, then make the translation from what the, what the patient is, the client is experiencing and then formulate a treatment. So even though the studies that are um, available and in the greatest quantity have been those things that I've just talked to you about, there is really nothing that I would say can't be attempted with acupuncture because it's an entirely different way of thinking about the body. Does that make sense? So yeah. it's a matter of, re but the translation of what, been done in other countries to what we define as randomized placebo double-blinded studies that are uh, strong enough to say oh yes we've got the proof that it works i think that's what the where the difficulty is right now there are camps on both sides that say these studies are strong enough and then there are people that say well this isn't strong enough and inherently i think the design unlike a drug that you can have a placebo for it's a little mm -hmm. bit harder to do placebo acupuncture mm-hmm yeah, and I was actually really surprised when I first did some digging on acupuncture and the extensive history of it, but also saw that there are like hundreds of studies discussing acupuncture, and you're right, there are studies showing a positive effect for it, and particularly there are some really cool neuroimaging studies using fMRI that shows the depressed activity of pain centers in the brain when um, acupuncture is given. So I thought that was all like really fascinating. It is. And so, like I said, sometimes it's the technology catching up. Mm -hmm. We have yet to visualize what these meridians are, but maybe it's just a technology that we're waiting to happen. Yeah. yeah. Be able to, to, to put into touch, see, feel what it is that we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another one of the camp therapies that I found when researching was aromatherapy. Now, have you ever had a patient that you recommended aromatherapy for, or has a patient ever come to you saying that they actively use aromatherapy? Like, what is it used for? Is it mood or anxiety or something? The practitioners that I've learned of have been uh, people who've been interested, and then they study it, and they start using it. And then as the results come, they're more encouraged to recommend it. I think in the purest sense, they're... Absolutely. Smell is, you know, very, very important to um, to our well-being. And peppermint, for example, can help with digestion. Um, if you think about the scent, obviously, we're talking about essential oils. Uh, lavender can be very calming. So you'll find that commonly in formulations just to, to calm the nervous system and to relax. And because mm -hmm. I don't practice aromatherapy, I, I'm not aware of all of the different ones, but I was 
talking to somebody who is recommending things with chemthal, menthol, for example, for respiratory. We sort of know about the tux that one rubs on the chest, sort of that concept, yeah. the smell opening up the nasal passages. Um, mm. And then there is uh, tea tree oil, which is used as an antifungal, but that's more using it as its herbal quality, right? Mm-hmm. So there, are, there is a place for it, and of the purest quality in an adjustable formula in small quantities. You know, I think it's a matter of again safety. If rubbing a little, if you're not sensitive, and you put a little bit of something on your skin, if it's a topical mm-hmm. and it makes you feel better or resolve some issue, maybe it's a headache. That seems to be so much safer than taking a, a pill that has additional side effects beyond treating the pain that's in place, right? Beyond the prostaglandin, there may be other side effects from your ANSAIDs, for example. So I think that, but it's important to know the properties and what the potential side effects are when we start talking about aromatherapy. That yeah. there's, there isn't one thing that's a cure-all. I think that's the, we're all looking for something that complements the allopathic route way when something that we go the western round and it doesn't seem to be working we're always looking to see is there anything else that can make it a little bit better and so having those available certainly expands choices you may be able to do the allopathic route for your uh, let's say for your uh, digestive issues but if you can uh, take some peppermint for your tummy upset, mm-hmm. you will have a lot less side effects, right? So we think. <laughs> but it's personal um, experience. I think that that's, that's so important, you know, is um, as we go into this discussion, the importance of integrative medicine is, is, is really at the end of the day, the, the idea that health and wellness is complicated. It's not just one modality. It's it's looking at someone's um, sleep and social relations and their nutrition and where they are mentally, spiritually, emotionally, in addition mm-hmm. to the organic things that happen. So that's why it's important to really have a practitioner that will listen and think about the person from those different perspectives and then conclude what might be some of the suggestions that work. And I think that's why we have so many different types of treatment on the table for what we call mm-hmm. alternative or integrative or complementary or what have you, is that there are different components being addressed. Fundamentally, a person, I think, coming to a practitioner is really looking to feel better and the modalities that are suggested, if they're offered with with kindness and with expertise, and I think that's the setting where treatments work the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I totally agree. I like the principle of cam therapy because, you know, as you said, it embodies this whole, like whole person ideology and giving them more options, um, giving the patients more options. And um, I was actually reading an article or listening to a podcast or something, I forget, but it talked about how giving those um, choices to patients is empowering, which is crucial because, you know, health is so personal. And when you are sick and have no 
seemingly no options left, patients can feel this sense of powerlessness. So it's an important it's important to consider to uh, tap into like other options that are potentially out there, um, such as those provided by alternative medicine or integrative medicine in general. Um, yeah, I think so. When we talk about integrative medicine as the the umbrella, mm-hmm. even beyond what the different modalities are underneath it, I think the key part is actually that patient relationship with the doctor, the doctor-patient relationship, because without that, you can't really call it integrative. So I think about it more as an approach to taking care of someone than I do think of it as a single modality. It's Mm -hmm. really thinking about the whole person. So I'd like to get back and um, talk about how, uh, talk about the other CAM therapies that may not also be as well known or as highly touted, and um, one of them being biofield um, therapy. So these are like the Reiki masters or um, the BioTouch slash like feedback masters. And uh, so, I so I guess, can you describe what is or are like Reiki masters and like what they actually do and like how does it work? Well, my personal story is I had a relative that was dying end stage cancer and she was very fragile and there was um, palliative care at this point in time and had a lot of pain. So this is in Hong Kong. She was having Reiki done. The idea that we all have electrical field around us um, would be the most scientific way to think about it, right? Our heart, our brain, it's generating electricity all the time. And so using one's energy to uh, to come into the space of someone else without you don't have to touch for the that field to be present and using one's energy in a very directed way i think the practitioner has to concentrate on what it is that they are attempting to do and to direct their energy for the good of the person they're interacting with is the premise of of the reiki Mm -hmm. i do not practice reiki but if you think about it in that context, so if my relative and my relative did want this treatment and they were very fragile and having this space of someone, mm-hmm. it reminds me of, um, oh, this is more heart rate variability. But, you know, if you think about if you come into the space of somebody who is very, very content and happy, the mm-hmm. energy is very different, even without. Mm-hmm without speaking, without touching, without interacting, then if you come into an angry room with, with very negative energy, to direct that focus where someone is really that close to you, centimeters mm-hmm. away, inches away from you, and, and, and you know that, that they're attempting to help you and their intent is to help you. Mm-hmm. It, that, I think that makes it more, it makes it more um, what is the word, uh, solid in terms of thinking about how that might work. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I was so interested about it because, you know, I never heard about it. And, you know, it's also really interesting and amazing that you have a personal story attached to it. it I was really neat. amazed. That was my first introduction to yeah. seeing somebody actually over the ta- over the bed working on my relative. Yeah. 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 And so she was like really appreciative of it um, and that it like worked or <laughs> I don't I don't really know if that's the right word to say work, but you know, it sounds like it helped him or her, um, helped him or her through through the, the illness. Yes, yeah, this was something that, because it, it's pain-free to administer, 
you mm -hmm. know, there's no side effects that I could think of, um, adverse side effects. And she was really delicate. You just, you know, at, at, at the last week or two of her life. And so it, it's beautiful that you can do something like that to alleviate some suffering. No? Yeah. So now I'd like to touch on another really interesting CAM therapy and that being herbal medicine. And specifically, so, so in parentheses, I put in Chinese herbal medicine. So I didn't really know if there were other forms of herbal medicines or the fact that if it originated from China and that's why you often see Chinese in front of the words herbal medicine or yeah. Um, no, every culture has its own, right, mm -hmm. botanical therapy, I mm -hmm, think would mm -hmm. be the broader term to think about it. Um, the most, what we know about maybe the most is the traditional Chinese medicine because there's so many different ones that are utilized. And it's mm -hmm. very, very complex, actually. Um, the practitioners in Asia, they start with the roots that you combine mm -hmm. to to create a concoction. And oftentimes it is based on uh, the the traditional Chinese medicine diagnosis or what you think is missing. If it's a vital kidney energy, for example, you may choose ginseng for, for that, mm -hmm. but then you generalize it to more global uses. In um, the world of acupuncture and TCM, there are concoctions that are westernized, meaning that uh, once you know the what you think is the traditional Chinese medicine diagnosis of the problem, there are companies, American companies that have worked with providers in Asia to put into a formula that would help address whatever the issue is, whether it's menopause or insomnia, um, translate that to a traditional Chinese medicine diagnosis, and then have the herbals in combination that would work with it. So that would be the TCM. But, you know, what does peppermint fall under? But it's kind of herbal, right? It's a plant that we use. Uh, there are um, different cultures that utilize different different uh, mm. botanicals. So I think, and herbals are, um, I think there's certainly more studies on some than others, right? There are ones mm -hmm. that are kind of exotic that we don't know about. But even mm -hmm. from the standpoint of, uh, what will we, let's say aspirin, digitalis, these mm. are some of the things that came from um, plants to begin with. So mm -hmm. how far back, you know, when you haven't distilled it to the chemical and made it into a pill form, it's still a herb. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm curious as to when a patient comes in and on their chart, it says in other medications, you know, herbal medicine, what do you say would be like the top three medications in the category of herbal medicine that, um, that your patients are using and like, what are they using it for? Okay, so I have seen, and this isn't exactly an herb, but you know, there are people who prefer to use the red yeast rice, and it's mm -hmm. a rice. So not as an herbal, but as a plant substitute, but that it's what lovastatin was derived from, actually. So there's actually the active ingredient in there. Uh, what else am I seeing as a herbal? I don't think I have really, you know, I sometimes will see homeopathy, Right, mm -hmm. so we're skipping ahead a little bit. People who take homeopathic concoctions um, for TCM, I have some patients who are interested in acupuncture who've been to somebody who I don't specialize in the herbals, but who have been given formulas to try, and 
digestion is is a big one um, mm -hmm. that they utilize it for mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. for menopause for the some of the hormonal especially around menopause um, mm -hmm. there are TCM um, formulations we call them that are used for that for sleep mm -hmm. I've already mentioned that earlier those are the more common ones that I will see used mm -hmm. Uh, ginseng, for example, is used widely in Asia. It's thought to be good for vitality and energy, and it's mm -hmm. a very popular root um, mm -hmm. that is used uh, among the Asian population. There are um, certain bitter ones that are thought to be good for um, fighting inflammation. So, mm -hmm. again, that's more of the Chinese herbs that are being utilized. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about but I really, my patients have not come in with that many herbals that are already on board unless they've already seen somebody for with a TCM. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned homeopathy. Um, so what is homeopathy or homopathy? Um, you mentioned it was like a concoction? Homeopathy is <laughs> German, German in origin. And the idea that one millionth of a part of a particle still retains the properties. So it's very, very dilute. So when you look at the, the bottles, they'll say, you know, one part to a million or whatever it is, and that you can use it and it will still be helpful. And the most common place I see that is for upper respiratory. Um, and it tastes a bit sweet. That's, that's for, for coughs. Um, the relative harm from something like homeopathy is very, very low. But again, it's also a system of thinking about you have to make a diagnosis and then pull out the the, uh, the particular concoction that you think will be helpful. Yeah, yeah. I think I've actually seen, um, actually, I think it was briefly mentioned in one of our lectures that like snake venom can be very diluted and is used to treat certain conditions like pain relief or something and um like i think you can even get it on amazon um but but yeah i think it was like one to a one to a million one to a billion dilution of snake venom in these bottles so uh yeah i don't know if you've ever <laughs> seen people use that or if there is like any science behind that or um oh snake venom yeah. no i cannot <laughs> say that i've had anybody use all right. The most common context I see it is for upper respiratory problems. Okay. You can go to this, you know, the, the health stores and find mm -hmm. uh, oxylococcum, I think, is one of them that's homeopathic for colds. Is um, like zinc tablets, like coldies that you can get over the counter. I know uh, their boxes on them, they label it as like homeopathic medicine. So does that mean that there is like not a lot of zinc in there or something? So that would imply there's very little zinc in there then, because the, mm -hmm. the idea behind homeopathy is you're not getting big doses of, of any one active ingredient, and it should be very, very dilute, as you say. Yeah, I just mentioned it because that's one of the common places I see homeopathic medicine in the store. So yeah, so I'd like to talk about what a naturopathic doctor is. So what do they do and what principles guide their practice? Naturopathic doctors, I think, comes closest to what I think of as um, somebody who is looking at the, 
the, the different aspects that we talk about in terms of integrative medicine, but their tendency is to use more natural substances, so lifestyle, diet, mm -hmm. um, rather than go straight to the drug because they're not actually medical doctors, so they cannot prescribe medications. Mm -hmm. So what they have at their disposal then would be shy of prescriptive medications. They're also um, likely to be able to, to test uh, or want to test for some of the, for example, um, urine and saliva for maybe hormonal in, uh, imbalances. Some of the, the tests that we don't commonly do um, in traditional allopathic medicine and based on that, make recommendations about what might work best and what might be off. Mm -hmm, yeah. And how about yoga? I know you are a registered yoga instructor and I'm curious, have you ever had a patient come to you and in that encounter, you recommend that he or she comes to your yoga class? No, um, I do not, but I will assign postures that I think might be helpful for, mm -hmm. for example, the twist uh, and wind move. So there's a posture that is called wind move, removing. Where basically you're on your back and you hug your knees in as tightly as possible. Um, mm -hmm. And twisting, literally moving the knees over to one side and then moving the mm -hmm. knees over to the other side. You could do it seated or, or, or reclined. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, it physically changes the space, right? Mm -hmm. That you're putting a little bit of pressure on the abdominal cavity. And so mm -hmm. for constipation, for sluggish bowel, that could potentially be helpful and very, very benign to do. Um, certainly for all, uh, so much of the back maladies, the yoga postures that strengthen the back, you know, doing the cat cow maneuvers, right, to, to both mm -hmm. uh, round the back and also put a curve into the back might be helpful. So yoga therapy is a little bit of an offshoot compared to yoga in general. I mean, the, the word yoga has so many different, for me, it's a system. It's not just the asana, which is the posture, and which is what we think about. When we think yoga, we're thinking about the pose. But actually, the tradition that it comes from, it's, it's about meditation, it's about mindfulness, it's about how you treat other people and how you treat yourself and, you know, in the greater scheme of things. But when we're talking about yoga therapy, it's more about the, the, the physical postures. So I wanted to, to just clarify that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And the physical mm -hmm. posture part of it is, is you know, almost have to be a little bit of a sports medicine, a little bit of physical therapist, and think about how the posture might impact the body and then prescribe from that way. There are um, dedicated uh, studios that offer yoga therapy. Um, I, the practitioners have studied what are some of the postures that are particularly good, for example, for low back pain or particularly good to use in somebody who might have knee troubles that you don't injure when you go through the, the different poses, you know, postures that might strengthen the knee, for example. Um, mm -hmm. So that's how I would think about the yoga therapy are going to dedicate places that have been uh, that have been um, that emphasizes treating of somebody who might be injured or, or doing yoga with somebody who might be injured as opposed to let's say a big sports club where they offer yoga or a studio where they offer different types of yoga styles that would not be what i would consider to be yoga therapy for example so it's those musculoskeletal problems that you would bring in for the posturization of yoga 
Um, but then you had also touched on the meditation and mindfulness aspect that goes along with it. And actually that's listed as a separate cam therapy, which is possibly, you know, because of our westernized idea of yoga, as you said, you know, just being postures. So I guess focusing in solely on the meditation part, have you recommended it to patients and what have you used it for, for patients? So meditation comes up through many traditions though. You know, you'll see it. Um, but I, I, I don't mean to say that meditation is only a part of yoga, if that makes sense. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it is a part of yoga, but it's certainly not exclusive to yoga. And we are learning so much more about what it is that our mind can do and the benefits of meditation. The, as you might have been exposed to transcendental meditation through, through the school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right, and that's more of a um, a mantra-based meditation. Mm-hmm. There are meditations that are more mindfulness-based, meaning that the only work is really on the feelings that come up and the thoughts that come up and the sensations that come up as you are meditating and not on anything else that might might be present. There are ones that ask you to specifically focus on one sensation. Maybe it's just the breath rising and falling. There are meditations that are kindness meditations where you are directing kindness to everybody. There's meditations that are not sitting, but actually moving. There's moving medication meditations, like a walking meditation where you are actually focusing on what arises as you put one foot in front of the other. And one would argue that, you know, when you're really, your attention is really engaged so that you forget about time passing and uh, you're in your mind focused laser beam on one task, that that's meditation as well. So mowing the lawn, if you're really into mowing the lawn, you're concentrating on those lanes that you're creating is meditation. Um, the way that I use it therapeutically though, is depends on if somebody is looking for um, something to calm the nervous system or as a way to really center themselves and if they're amenable to a seated or a reclined meditation there's sometimes you can't sit right and you don't want to oh i want to mention the writing is a meditation too journaling is a form of um, putting your thoughts to paper and uh, so getting back to sitting meditations because when we say meditation we typically think about seated not moving eyes closed mm-hmm. breathing right very <laughs> much that way it's very easy to do um uh, when you understand that it's okay, whatever comes is comes. So meditation is better than no meditation. But there is there are studies that show that the different brain waves that arise when we're able to just not um, be busy doing other things that, that that it can affect how our brain functions and then in turn the other organ systems. So for anxiety, you know, I, I will teach. Um, people to meditate if they're able to to tolerate it. And then we move on to the different, more active forms if, if they're not able to do the seated. When I have patients in for acupuncture, it's actually the best time because they're not physically moving. So I will often introduce um, different types of meditation then um, or do a guided meditation with them where I'm actually the person helping uh, combining sort of imagery and meditation together. The nice thing about meditation is it's readily available for one to practice. There are apps out there that'll help to, to for some for somebody who's new to it and want more guidance. So it's it's readily available. It's 
essentially free for for everybody. It's a matter of just doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just talking about meditation, it reminds me of another CAM therapy that I came across, that being hypnosis. And I know one of your partners, Dr. Migelvelter, is certified in medical hypnosis and uses it in his practice. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on hypnosis, because I think, you know, we generally think of hypnosis as something, someone trying to to, I don't know, mind, mind trap someone or something. Um, so like, what is medical hypnosis and like, what's the differences between like our stereotyped version of uh, what hypnosis is and actually using it functionally um, for patients? It is true. That's what we think of as the TV. No, not quite like that. Not quite that dramatic. Hypnosis <laughs> is helping uh, a person to be put into a state of relaxation such that their mind is really receptive to Mm -hmm. the ideas that may come, but uh, the person receiving it is fully awake. There's no, you know, a trance in a sense Mm -hmm. of like being out of their mind, but because the, the state of mind is such that the ideas that come are received in a different way than if you were to study it, It, it's more right brain is what I think it is. And Mm -hmm. It helps with pain syndromes. It helps to reframe what would be um, anxiety. It, it is good for really anything that you can think of where you want to put into the mindset, maybe behaviors or, or attitudes or mm-hmm. whatever it is to counter the, the, what it is that you're trying to treat. So for example, for let's say we're doing medical hypnosis for smoking cessation, right? That's a context that I've seen it arise a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps you'll want to visualize. So in a very relaxed state, uh, there's an induction where you help someone to really get relaxed and, and, and feel comfortable in a space that's created in their mindset. And then think about the benefits of, of being a non-smoker, what that might look like, how they might transform themselves from a smoker to a non-smoker, and then feeling that good and encouraging that sense of well-being that arises, then when someone comes out of it, or maybe it's an adverse reaction that you that you say you're going to notice if you were to smoke, and then so when they come out of it, those kinds of thoughts are in the brain in a way that is more deeply embedded than if they were simply to read about it or to be told about it without that state of being induced. That's so interesting. and. Another thing that I actually have heard hypnosis being used for is, actually, I think it was Dr. Mickelvelder who described this, but um, that it can be used for boys who wet the bed at night. And anecdotally, I heard it's actually pretty successful in helping these kids. And I, one of the settings that he does use it for is for, um, not yes, maybe boys, but certainly for urge incontinence, mm-hmm. right, where you um, strengthen the connection between the brain and the body and in a subconscious state help somebody to do that Mm. then so that in the um, voluntary state in the awake state we'll call it Mm. that that will be a stronger connection so that the urge will not be as overpowering Mm. you know the so there's many ways to I think the script for it is is important how we think about and knowing the person that offering hypnosis too is important so that what is relevant for the patient and what's going to make sense. One of the ways, for example, that I have heard uh, this connection between the mind and the bladder work is really helping someone to visualize 
the connection from the brain. So starting from the head once again, uh, imagining the spinal cord just as a cord that comes down like telephone wires that then go to send messages to the bladder and to be able to cue control by visualizing color or, or whatever image comes up best for, for the person who is using this exercise because it won't be the same for everybody, but that control. Maybe it's telling the bladder, no, it's red color now, you're not releasing any urine, right? Or physically seeing the bladder relaxed or, or using mm -hmm. the color green to say, okay, now you release or you know some, something along those lines, but we're doing it in a state of relaxation, in a state where they're induced to, 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 be, to be more open to these suggestions. Yeah, I just find that so fascinating. So, uh, you know, after talking about all these therapies and looking at them as a whole, are there ones that have more research or more evidence out there in support of them? Or are there others that are maybe less researched, but anecdotally you've seen some benefits to them? Well, you had started the conversation by saying that you've seen a lot of research on acupuncture, and I think there's more forthcoming. Part mm -hmm. of it is funding. Mm -hmm. When you do research, you need money, and mm -hmm. who stands to... You know, so if there is no drug company that benefits from doing research, well, maybe from homeopathy companies, but you know what I mean? You need to have the funding so that there is no one person doing it. So the, um, I think that because of the Medicare question, there's more funding towards research for acupuncture, right? Whether or not we're going to cover it. Um, that's one thing to think about is, as far as the evidence goes for it. Um, so acupuncture, and we know that TM has put out a bunch of acupuncture uh, evidence as well uh, for lowering blood pressure, right? For helping with depression and so on. Mm -hmm. The, um, I think there is research on homeopathy, how strong it is. I, I have not looked at myself, so I'm not going to comment on that. Um, uh, with hypnosis and meditation, there is definitely evidence for that uh, as well in the research. As far as herbals are concerned, the certain ones that are, I think, fairly well accepted, like we talked about ginger and, and peppermint for the GI um, and lavender for calming, I think that's fairly well accepted. Um, so I would have to say I, I need to go back and really look at the research to see how strong it is for each one of those areas and you can't really talk about naturopathic medicine as a right because that's a it's a style of doing medicine it's a system of doing medicine and there's definitely research on the acute use for acute for low back pain with chiropractic treatments and i suspect with osteopathic manipulations as well but each of those is deeper than just one diagnosis i think the ones that we tend to know about are the ones that have been best studied don't know about the snake oil though <laughs> and what that is supposed to do <laughs> So I'd like to touch on some questions that we as a group came up with to ask. And um, some of these questions don't really fit into a particular category, but I think they would be really interesting to discuss um, just in general. So to start off for the physicians that are listening in and may not be too familiar with CAM therapies, um, what do you believe is the key takeaways for them uh, that they should be walking away with? Being open, first of all, uh, because people are using it, using different modalities, right? Whether they've got the physician's approval or knowledge um, or buying off the shelf vitamins and minerals and herbals and supplements and seeking chiropractic and acupuncture. So there's obviously a demand for something other than what we are putting forth. 
and knowing that uh, as a medical doctor, being open and, and being willing to learn and research. If a patient tells you this is really great and it works for me, then maybe it's a jumping off to say, hey, let me read about it a little bit and I will get back to you, as opposed to saying, oh, this makes no sense whatsoever. Um, I think about some of the testing that, uh, like vitamin D, I think, you know, it's become very mainstream. In fact, I think it's passe now, but it, but it was big in the functional medicine realm long, long, long time to talk about vitamin D and think about vitamin D. And we're yet to discover all the things that vitamin D can potentially do. Uh, so not to, 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 to say it doesn't work simply because we don't know about it, you know, that, that it's a worthwhile conversation to have. And it may be even worthwhile to find out what it is that is not working such that a person is seeking other modalities and to work with it and, and, and being mindful of not everything is safe, right? There is definitely, in, I mean, even something like ginseng can raise blood pressure. So to learn about it and potential the harms that can arise, I think is important to be on the lookout for. But the most important thing is, is if you know your patients, and I think getting to know your patients well is the best starting point because your advice, whatever it is, will be better executed and there'll be more trust. Um, and, and it will also, you know, for it'll make the allopathic pathway work better too. There's not a distinct, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other. It's just what we get taught in medical school and in residency and so on, as opposed to what is not traditionally on the menu of things that we learn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So do you believe that alternative medicine is for everyone? Or do you recommend physicians like always incorporate a certain CAM therapy when treating a specific disease or when recommending treatment options for patients or? Teaching mindfulness and meditation seems to be a very, very simple something that can be done that can benefit, I think, everybody. Mm -hmm. um, talking about the... So oh, let me step back one one step, which is... If it can be done with lifestyle, that should be first. So mm -hmm. if we can understand the barriers to exercising, so maybe they need some acupuncture or they need to see the chiropractor because they've got pain that's preventing them from doing the exercise piece of it. So that's where that would come in if you don't want to take an NSAID all the time for pain, for example. Um, for sleep, if you can figure out, is there something emotionally that's going on to help them we have a good skills for communication to, to, to sort of dig a little bit. So then, you know, it may not be the sleeping pill that they need, but maybe they, they need to work on getting the relationship sorted out to talk to somebody. Maybe that might be what they need. Um, so I think getting to know your patients first is the first thing using Again, and being knowledgeable about food, because food certainly can be medicine, right? So mm -hmm. knowing foods is important, knowing that movement is important, encouraging social relationship is important, helping the mental health is important. I think those are the fundamental things. Before I even reach for like, okay, take this, this will help you. Those are the quick fixes. And, and we all want quick fixes, trust me, right? But but at the end of the day, the quick fixes you is just because... Um, let me think about an example, just because I take, even let's say if I don't have a real deficiency and I'm taking magnesium, for example, to, to because I'm told that that's going to be good for muscle relaxation and that's going to be good for helping me perhaps to sleep and calm the nervous system. But, you know, you can supplement 
things if there's a deficiency, but then you're trying to supplement as opposed to taking a pill or a drug or nutraceuticals as opposed to pharmaceuticals. I don't necessarily agree that that is better. It's just taking something else that maybe has less, you know, side effects. So to the extent that can, and, and we're talking about wellness, right? We're not talking about somebody coming in with congestive heart failure who, in addition to the lifestyle piece of it, need to be on their medication. So I want, I want to clarify that um, that's where the complement piece comes in. We're not trying to replace essential things that somebody might need. If, let's say, if really difficult to control blood pressure, I'm not going to suggest, oh, do a little acupuncture, do a little meditation, that that's going to do the trick, if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So um, the settings that I would rec- be, be recommending it is if somebody truly says, you know, I, I would like to explore this option and then explore it with the patient. Great. And you almost touched on it because my next question focuses on the longevity question. And, you know, there are a bunch of longevity podcasts out there, articles like websites, Google searches of, you know, how to live longer and be the healthiest person you can be. And a lot of these resources focus on, you know, eating healthy, exercise, having a diet high in antioxidants or eating like quote unquote superfoods for healthy living. Um, So, you know, are there certain camp therapies that give us, you know, I don't want to say elixir of life, but I'm curious if you have uh, have seen any longevity research attached to any of these camp therapies. There, there is, a, is it the 4A? There, there are, it's like an anti-aging medicine group as well, uh, thinking about maybe it's the fact that we lose hormones as we get older, so we need to be replacing testosterone right it's a low t that's responsible for things mm-hmm. no uh, you can probably tell from this discussion that i do not believe there is an elixir of life we haven't found it yet if, if there is one out there but because it is not just one thing in our lives you know you can be eating the cleanest foods possible taking the best vitamins and um, possible but if you are a hot mess emotionally and your relationships are not good, that's not necessarily going to be longevity. The formula is is certainly not one one thing that you can do. But I like that the, 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 when you read about it, you talked about mindfulness and meditation and nutrition and antioxidants, you know, but even food, I think this is so fascinating. I am currently um, looking at the ketogenic camp of people who believe that, you know, it is the, the, the root of all evil is carbohydrate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly historically, the, the idea of going low carb has been there. It goes back much further than Atkins. It, I think it's 18 something. I can't remember who was the phys- Banting? I think it was Banting. 1870, 18 something like that. Anyway, but time I think bears out what the truth is. But the real question is, is there an optimal diet for human beings even? Like, do we know what is the very best diet for human mm-hmm. beings? I don't think we have the answer to that one either. We know processed foods, probably not, right? Mm-hmm. Highly sugared colas, probably not. But but the idea that, you know, are we is it the micronutrients? Is it the macronutrients that matter? Or maybe it's just that as human beings, um, and then, of course, the food is different now in time than it was before we started putting fertilizers in the ground and, and our earth is more depleted now than it was before. So the food is also different. But 
the idea that as humans, though, we are amazing. We are so adaptive that depending on where we are in the world and what food source is available, our body can convert a whole lot of things. You know, so there are people who are carnivorous. They do not believe that you need any plants at all. And I've spoken to people who firmly believe that you can get every, your body will make whatever it is that it needs from the meat that you eat. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So, um, so if I can't even answer the simple question of what the optimal diet yet is, I'm not so sure we can answer the question of one elixir that's going to make us live longer. So that it's mm -hmm. complex. Mm -hmm. And sorry to keep pushing you on this, but I find this topic just to be so interesting. Um, but, you know, hypothetically, if someone were to follow all these recommendations, you know, including like exercise an hour every day, they're very mindful, they meditate, they're eating what we think is quote unquote, a healthy diet. Um, maybe they're releasing stress or muscle tension through acupuncture, you know, every week. Um, do you know, do you strongly believe that these can these things can increase our lifespan. And, you know, I guess some of these things are just general recommendations that most doctors will give to patients anyway. So I guess you're right in the sense that maybe there isn't one specific therapy slash treatment for longer living, but a combination. And this is the epigenetics too, meaning that, you know, sometimes people really focus on, oh, my father died of heart disease at 40. I'm looking forward to that, right? So there is the, the, the genetics, you can't forget that, because it does, in traditional Chinese medicine, it very much matters, the foundational mm -hmm. material that you were given to work with. So all that we can really do is to do what we can with what we can control, which would be the epigenetics, the after fact, and how mm -hmm. we live our lives to maximize what we are given. But you know, even in the optimum setting, that interplay, um, there is not, you can't, if you are, if you have the BRCA gene, what does that mean? You know, can you do all those things and then the BRCA gene will never express itself? Do we know that? So, so I, you know, we can only control what we can control, I think is, is the uh, overarching sort of conclusion to how we conduct our lives and, and take care of ourselves and to the extent of controlling what we can control, even stressors. I and, mean, you know, if you've got a stressful job or as a medical student, different stresses that are, you know, how do you manage that? Because it's going to be there. That, mm -hmm. that, that doesn't uh, change, but the only thing you can change is how your response to it. So mm -hmm. that would be in life, you know, in all arenas as well. Um, so I just have two more quick questions with, uh, the first being personal wellness advice. So are there certain things that you recommend to people and, you know, you mentioned that you encourage meditation, but, um, are there other things like should we invest in a tens machine for muscle stim and MSK relaxation, or should we book acupuncture appointments in the future if we have anxiety or, um, yeah. Sleep. 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 I, I, and I am working on that myself because it seems like there's just so many things to do. The sleep is the easiest to sacrifice, but it's mm -hmm. also the one thing that I think we should all really, really work on. Um, because it, when you get a good night's sleep, your attitude is different, right? You're, you remember things better and you know, it's, it's anti-inflammatory. It's, it's actually inflammatory if you don't get enough sleep. So uh, that would be, and that takes up a third. I mean, that's what, if you think about it, ideally eight hours, that's a third of our lifetime that is 
we're supposed to be spent in sleep that we are cutting down to, you know, okay, instead of 33%, we're going to give it 20% or five hours or whatever the case might be. So if I had to, that would be the number one advice is do the best for sleep hygiene and have a regular pattern, if at all possible, to do that piece of it. Um, so again, that's lifestyle medicine more than it is anything that someone else can give you. But there are different things you can do to promote sleep, right? So that's where maybe if you know how to meditate, that might be a nice time to settle in. If you yoga, some yoga, or you don't even have to call it yoga, some stretches that one can do to just sort of to work out the kinks before one settles down into bed into stillness. Um, mm -hmm. Mindfully journaling, maybe that's the place where you just put a good, few good thoughts down or do a grateful gratefulness meditation about the things you're, you know, that you have gratitude for mm -hmm. uh, before you go to sleep might be a good way to in introduce sleep. Um, and if you really, okay, so we'll move on from there. And then nutrition, the, the advice that I give about nutrition is really, I love this expression, it's Michael Pollan. I think he said, uh, eat food, mostly plants and not too much, you know? So I think that sort of encapsulates, eat real food. I mean, the things that come, that you can see growing and living and that it's not the processed stuff, I think is what he's trying to imply. And then oh, don't overdo it. So that's a piece of food advice. Um, and then sweat every day. Just move. It doesn't matter. You know, just move a little bit. I think that's the foundational things of, of what we can control. And then the rest of it is to address our, our emotional issues. And that gets so complicated, doesn't it? It depends on what kind of stressors and what the relationships are like. But there's always, you know, you just start, you just start with what, one, what you have. And then being grateful, I think that, um, is it, uh, who is it, I, Zal, who is it that wrote the book, Night? Um, Eli. Eli. Oh, oh um, Ellie Wazell. Was okay. well, um, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, yes. Man, I mean, yeah. if you think about some of the crazy stuff that people go through and then you put it into context of, okay, well, let me think about my life, right? Yeah. We don't have to go through that. And, and, and so everything is relative is what it is. Um, so to, to think about the good stuff in our life and not necessarily focusing on the bad, you know, is, is a good place to start. Um, so last question. Uh, so what resources are out there for people to learn more about camp therapy? Are there websites for, um, or for physicians? Are there certain classes or certification processes or conferences that they can sign up for, or should people you know, just in general, be encouraged to engage in uh, conversations with their physicians, you know, if they're interested in certain camp therapies? Yeah. So for medical doctors, because that's a community we're talking to, the AAMA, the American Academy of Medical Acupuncturists, mm -hmm. um, is an excellent website because it'll, you, you can find the programs that train medical doctors to do acupuncture. Um, homeopathy, there are definitely programs. There are two former Loyola doctors actually who teach homeopathy. Um, and I don't remember what the society is called. And then there is um, the uh, Society for Medical Acupuncture for Clinical Hypnosis. It's, is it ASHI? I'm trying to remember their acronym. Um, but they will, you certainly can take classes and, and, and receive certification in that. Um, for, and now unless you go back to naturopathic school, and oh yeah, a naturopathic school, and there is a training 
to, to you know, they call it medical school because it is a whole system that they learn about. Um, mm -hmm. Functional medicine is another sort of, um, it is really allopathic medicine plus. They're looking mm -hmm. at the root causes of a medical problem and, and tracing it back. And there's certification for that as well. Now, I don't know if anybody from medical school would go back to do chiropractic. That seems right. But, you know, but, but certainly to, to maybe even themselves as a consumer, go and get a treatment and see what it's all about and then make an informed decision about whether it's for them or not. Um, mm -hmm. And then with herbals and, and, and that's reading about it, you know, and mm -hmm. doing a little bit of research. So there's so much information available, I think, with the, um, with the Internet and, um, you know, looking at the National Institutes of Health website, if you're not sure. Um, Talk to the doc. Talk to your doctor. Talk to you. You would do the research, right? To help <laughs> someone sort out uh, whether something is worthwhile or not. I think the main thing is this consideration of not doing harm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. This was uh, such an informative conversation and something that I've been looking forward to for a while now. And I know I got a lot of great information out of it. And uh, I hope that those who are listening found it helpful and intriguing and can appreciate now what uh, CAM therapy can potentially do for patients um, as well. So uh, we just want to thank you again for taking the time to share all of your knowledge and wisdom uh, with us. Yes, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.